Brothers and sisters, good morning. Would you please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be covering the entirety of this chapter this morning. To begin, we'll read verses 1 through 8. I'll be reading from the New King James Version this morning. Please follow along as I read God's holy word. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, as we approach your word this morning, it's a hard word but it's your word. So, Father, speak this hard word to our hearts and let us see your grace in the midst of the pain that's before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As you're finding your seats, I'd ask you to have your outlines nearby. We'll refer to them often. Pastor Brian has said many, many times that we can sum up the storyline of the Bible in three words. What are those three words? Creation, fall, redemption. All right, for many, many years we've been saying that. The storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption. So here we are in Genesis chapter 3, and we're all ready to the second word of our three-word summary. First two chapters of Genesis, we cover creation. And now we're in chapter 3 of Genesis, and we're at the fall. The rest of the Bible will then point forward to redemption or tell us the glory of redemption. But but if we think about that that storyline, if we don't get the opening chapters of Genesis right, we've lost the storyline. We have to properly understand creation and we have to properly understand the fall or we're not going to logically be able to make sense of redemption. So we have to see these chapters as they are, as God intends us to read them. And if we're being honest, there are an awful lot of Christians that won't see this. I'm not talking about unbelievers right now. I'm not talking about those that reject the word of God. I'm not talking about those from other religions that think they're reading the Word of God right. I'm talking about Christians. 
Christians we love and respect, Christians that we will spend eternity with in heaven that are reading this wrong. And, and they're turning these opening chapters in, into fable, into allegory, into moralistic stories, but they're not seeing them as God revealed history. And when, when we hurt the reading of the Bible in that way, when we're not reading the Bible as God intends and we're, and we're seeing it some other way, there's going to be logical gaps in our reasoning. We're not going to see God's sovereignty right. We're not going to see our depravity right. And if we're missing those two steps, we're not going to fully appreciate God's amazing grace. So, so we have to see this Chapters 1 and chapters 2 and chapters 3, we've got to see it as God revealed history. And as we're looking at chapter 3 today, and then as we force ourselves to look into the mirror, we're going to recognize something. The sin problem is not out there. My major sin problem is right here. And I can't blame everyone else and everything else. I've got to recognize there is a serious sin problem in my heart and if I don't take care of it in God's way, I'm going somewhere I don't want to go. And deservedly so. Let's look at our passage. We have a lot to cover this morning. Verses 1 through 7, we'll call this the entrance of sin. We see in verse 1, there's a cunning serpent. Now, if we look at chapter 3, we let our eyes scan. The whole time, this creature is revealed as a serpent. Nowhere do we see this serpent referred to by the name Satan. But throughout most of Orthodox Christianity, we, we see this as Satan somehow taking over this serpent in this temptation. Uh, Dylan, if you can pull, there's a couple of verses from Revelation, Revelation 12, Revelation 20, a couple of times in Scripture where Satan's referred to as that serpent of old. Um, so e even though this passage we have this morning doesn't specifically say Satan, I'm going to go off of the understanding that this is a literal serpent that is somehow being moved or indwelt or, or activated by the forces of Satan. Okay, So we go back to our text in Genesis and we see in chapter 3 verse 1, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said to the woman, has God indeed said? And that's very much a Satan ploy. One of the main attacks of Satan, especially against Christians, is doubt of the word of God. Did God really say that? Does God really mean that? Are you sure that's what the scripture says? Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Here's another Satan ploy. Ploy number two. Focus on the prohibition. Ignore the provision. Pastor Brian made real clear to us last week, the Garden of Eden was awesome. There was plenty there for Adam and Eve and their family. And it was a self-sustaining thing, Adam still had to work the garden, but there would have been enough to provide forever. And they had access to 99.9% .9 of the fruits in that garden. 
And here's the serpent. You can't eat of every tree? That doesn't sound fair. That doesn't seem right. What a cruel God to not let you do everything you want to do. And how often has that temptation from Satan gotten us? We, we, we ignore all the incredible blessings we have and we're ultra-focused on the one thing I want to do that God says don't do. Why can't I do that? Why can't I make this decision for myself? I've done it before. It didn't hurt that bad. Why can't I do it? And that's a ploy of Satan. Ignore the many blessings. Ultra-focus on those prohibitions that, if we're being honest, are good for us. We get to verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not touch it, or you shall eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve starts by saying, God has said, and then she quotes. But if we go back to chapter 2, verse 17, we're going to notice these quotes don't line up. Because in Genesis 2, 17, God says to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God doesn't mention touching it. But now here's Eve quoting God. God said, don't eat it. God said, don't touch it. Must we die? We don't have all the history here. We have what God needs us to have. But th there is definitely a gap here. We don't see the transaction from, we, we see in chapter 2, verse 17, God's telling Adam, this is the law. Eve's not in the picture yet. So Adam has the responsibility of passing on the word of God to Eve. And we don't have that transaction. So it's in the realm of possibility, Adam added to the word of God. Eve, God said, don't eat or touch that tree or we'll die. That's in the realm of possibility. It's also in the realm of possibility that Adam said it right, but Eve misheard. Maybe your marriage has experienced this thing called miscommunication. Possible. It's also her, possible, Eve heard it right. She thought, might as well add this so we don't go too far. And then Eve added. All of these are in the realm of possibility. Whatever happened, this is Eve, a creature of God, abusing the word of God. Because she is misquoting God. And we need to take that very, very seriously. God takes that very, very seriously. The serpent has a response in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The serpent ups his temptations, first casting doubt on the word of God, now straight up saying, you can't trust the validity of the word of God. God said you'll die, but you won't die. Interpreted a different way, God lied. Now, I said that, you got the shiver, right? Because you're a Christian. So Satan knows better than to tempt a Christian by saying God lied. He's going to be more subtle. It's not going to be the word of God is wrong. It's going to be, probably means this. 
there's other Christians doing it. There's other people doing it. You want to do it anyway. You want to believe this anyway. It's not what it really means. He's got a lot of years of tempting people. And he's good at what he does. So here's the subtle attempt. You're not going to die. God knows, verse 5, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at this attempt now. So now we, we, we've attacked the validity of the word of God. Now Satan's attacking the character of God. God's holding you down because he doesn't want you to be like him. This is for your best. And God's taken it from you. Who wants to serve a God like that? And here's the serpent chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And Eve is continuing the conversation in her state of innocence. She's heard enough. So verse 6, she's now made her way to the tree. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit. I had a class of juniors and seniors years and years ago when I taught at Kuiper in my philosophy class. And, and, and the, the, these students, they, these are students I'm never going to forget because they had this incredible ability to be arrogant and really bad at school all at the same time. And so as I'm preparing my lesson, trying to best serve them and help them and, and guide them into understanding this concept. And we're going to talk about a worldview that leans on the senses as the, as the source of ultimate truth. And I'm trying to think, how do I guide them? So, so I talk about the basics of this worldview, and then I ask the question. And in my head, I'm going to have to really baby step them through this process, because I think I know their answer. So I ask, have your senses ever deceived you? And all the kids with their arrogance that I expected, they all go, no. But one kid, one kid right away goes, I've been deceived by my senses many times. Cool. So I ask, what do you mean? And he says three words that made the rest of my class so much easier. Because these three words hit the heart of every student. His three words, phantom phone vibration. (laughs) What do you mean? I think my phone's vibrating. And I grab it and I look. Nope. Phone didn't vibrate. I thought it did. Thought I felt it. Didn't happen. I'm still not popular and I put my phone back in my pocket. And all the kids go, yeah, me too. I've had that before. I I thought it was vibrating and I look. Oh, nope, guess not. And I put it in. So, So now the door's been open. So then we go through. Have you ever thought you saw something out of the corner of your eye and you look and you didn't? Yeah. You ever think you... Heard somebody calling your name, and it turns out they weren't. Yeah! So we go through the senses, and they go, okay, yep, yep, we've been deceived by our senses. So then I ask, can we all recognize our senses have deceived us? Yes! Next question. Do you still trust your senses? And they go, well, yeah. I ask why, and they give a great answer. Usually, our senses are right. Usually, if I think I see a red car drive by, I do, in fact, see a red car drive by. Usually, 
If I walk into the house and it smells like fresh bread, usually when I go into the kitchen, there's fresh bread. Most of the time, my senses are right. And I think if we go through this room, we'd all be in that same place. My senses have deceived me, but most of the time, my senses are right. And and that's a pretty good ratio. Sometimes, though, God says something, and our senses seem to be implying or telling us something else. So then we have the, the option. You can believe your senses that are right most of the time, or you can believe God, who's right all the time. Sometimes we have to look in the mirror and recognize that's what's before us. Eve gets to the tree and her eyes say, that looks good. And from what she's heard about the tree, that sounds like it's in my best interest. And she chooses to believe her senses over God. The serpent said, when you eat of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's all recognize the serpent's a liar, but in one sense, he was very, very true. Eve tried to be like God, in the sense, I will be my lawgiver. I will decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. God, get off your throne I'm in charge. So Eve determines for herself she's the lawgiver. Eve trusts her senses, and Eve eats of the forbidden fruit. Where's Adam in all of this? We keep reading verse 6. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam is not with her at the time that the serpent and Eve are having this conversation. We don't know how far they were from the tree, but there was some distance. So they have Eve and the serpent, they have their conversation, Eve hears enough, Eve makes her journey towards the forbidden tree. As she's making her journey, somehow, some way, Adam sees and goes with her. Or he's already there. Either way, by the time she gets there, to do this, he's there with her. We go back to chapter 2, verse 15. Adam was given a very serious responsibility. Sometimes we think, Adam, man was given one law and they broke it. And that's not entirely true. Because Adam is given the responsibility to tend and keep the garden. Okay, uh, Pastor Brian said we, we could use those words as, as serve and guard. I, 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 I've heard it, it's provide and protect. I pick up the alliterations faster than Pastor Brian. So we'll do the two P words. I obviously don't. Um, th- that word keep, whether it means guard, whether it means protect, it is, it's a very much a security word. You will protect. You will guard. We're going to see that word at the end of this chapter. The angels outside of the Garden of Eden are keeping the garden, guarding the garden, the exact same word. And this is a word that we say almost every week from Numbers. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. Same Hebrew word. 
So as, as we are passing on this blessing, God gives the blessing to the Levites to give to the people. We then give that blessing unto you as we pray at the end of each service. We're praying, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he guard you, sustain you. May he be a high tower to you this week, because this world is hard. Same word. Adam, you guard that garden and everything in it. And what was more precious in that garden than his wife? So here's Eve making the journey towards the forbidden tree. And there's Adam doing nothing. There's Eve reaching up to take that fruit. And there's Adam doing nothing. There's Eve bringing that forbidden fruit to her mouth to take a bite out of it. And there's her husband right next to her doing nothing. The first sin was eating the forbidden fruit. Are you seeing all the failures along the way? Eve adding to the word of God. Adam abdicating his God-given role, watching his wife stumble to her depravity and doing nothing. And then joining her as he eats the fruit himself. And now the world is different. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. This is, again, a very common thing. You make a mistake. What do you do? I try to fix it in my power. This is why so many man-made religions are so enticing to us in our flesh. You blew it. Say these ten prayers. You'll be okay. Give this much money. You'll be okay. Do A, B, and C to make yourself right with God. But you read Genesis 3, we're not spiritually sick and need a little bit of medicine. We're spiritually dead. A dead man can do nothing to help himself. The help that we need must come from without. Let's look at the effects of sin. This is Roman numeral 2 in your notes going into verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. We go back before this event. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God in their purity, in their innocence, where they could walk with God and communicate with him and fellowship with him in the cool of the day. Sin has changed things. And now because of sin, man does not run toward God. Man runs from God and hides. Man shamefully covers himself in the presence of God. And obviously we see those coverings did nothing to, have, to help Adam and Eve with their shame. They still know they need to hide. They then uh, shift the blame when God confronts them. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. 
Let's be honest. Technically speaking, everything Adam and Eve said is factually right. It's a fact God gave Eve to Adam. It's a fact Eve gave Adam the apple, and then he ate when he's talking to Eve. It's a fact the serpent deceived her, and that's why she ate. Those are all facts. But That's exactly right. Um, but what's happening, I'm shifting the blame. Instead of being mad at me, direct your attention over there. Maybe I was speeding, but did you see that other car? Go get him. Maybe I yelled at my wife, but she burned dinner. Fill in the blank. Ignore the wrong I chose to do and get mad at someone else. How much blame shifting do we see in this world today? How much blame shifting have we done this past week? These are the effects of the fall. Now there's ramifications on this. This is letter C. God first directs his talking to the serpent. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. That's verse 14. When we get to verse 15, there's a shift. Because verse 14, this is very much directed to serpents, and we see this, obviously, serpents. So those creepy little things crawl on the ground and do their thing. Verse 15 doesn't make sense if he's still talking to a serpent. By the time we get to verse 15, now we're seeing the curse upon Satan and his demonic forces. Now we'll put enmity, God says, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hopefully that verse sounds familiar because we read it maybe ten times in the last two chapters of Matthew. We kept coming back to this passage, saying everything that's leading up to the cross, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3. The one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who was promised, who would come, who would crush Satan. Head blow. Think about old war. You got your sword, you got your shield, there's arrows flying through the air. If you get hit in the heel, that stinks. And you're not going to be as effective, but you can continue fighting. You get hit in the head, you're done. And if you're done, you're dead. So we look at the cross. Jesus felt a blow at the cross. But Jesus won at the cross. That was the death blow to Satan and his forces. And Satan's still doing his thing. We're still feeling the effects of Satan in this world. He's a defeated foe. This is the promise God gives at the beginning with, with these curses. There's a curse on the serpent. I want to be careful about that word curse. I've got to step back a little bit. I have wrongly said this many, many times. We look at this passage. The serpent is cursed. The ground is cursed. Adam and Eve, it doesn't say they're cursed. There's effects to humanity, but mankind is in the image of God. So, so sin is hurting, sin is hindering, but the Bible never says in these verses that Adam and Eve are cursed. So I want to watch my words very carefully. 
Then we go to the woman. She's next in verse 16. To the woman he said, and I'm going to read from the New King James. I will greatly multiply your sorrow, remember that word, in your conception. In pain, remember that word. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So let's go with those first two lines, if, if we've got looking on our notes or whatever. Uh, we've got the word sorrow and the word pain in, in New King James. Your version might say something different. There's other really, really good words we could use to interpret, or to translate this. Uh, pain, sorrow, toil, hardship, all of these are appropriate ways to translate both of those words. They are different words. The word sorrow and the word pain, they're different Hebrew words. And some of the translations I looked at this week, they have the same word used both times. And for me, that's, I like the, help us out, translators, we don't read Hebrew. Change it up so we know what's going on. Um, the first word that in New King James is sorrow. And we're going to see this word again in a minute. I think New King James got that word right. I think for this first phrase, sorrow is the best word. The second word, in pain you shall bring forth children. I think that's the best word. Some of you moms might say, you need a stronger word than pain. Mm -mm. And I will humbly respect that and, and say I, I cannot speak from experience here. But, but there's a different word. And I believe intentionally so. So we've got, in pain you will give birth. And again, all the moms, yep. I want us to see something with what God is saying to the woman in verse 16 and with what God is saying to the man in verses 17 through 19. To get this right, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to the first two chapters and see the God-ordained callings of men and women. Because what we're seeing in sin, what we're seeing in the ramifications of the fall, they, what they were called to do and these ramifications are directly connected. What was Eve called to do? We see in chapter 2, uh, verse 18, she was created to be a helpmeet, a helpmate, a helper. And as Pastor Brian said last week, I think you say 16 of the 19 times it's used, it's talking about God. So we, we, this is not a negative, being a helper. So, so Eve is, is created to be a helper. And then the other thing, uh, in chapter 1, verse 28, it says to be fruitful and multiply. That means having babies, and that's, biologically speaking, the responsibility of the women. Okay, so, so here's these two specific callings for women. Before the fall. Before the fall, women are supposed to be helpers unto their husbands. Before the fall, women are supposed to bear children. Now we get to chapter 3, verse 16. Bearing children now brings pain does not mean it's not good, but it hurts. You get the nine months of bearing the children, you get the morning sickness and the heartburn and the nausea and the, the ankles swelling and not being able to lay down in the last few months the way you want, all, all of these things. And this is pain. To say otherwise is not true. But any mom will tell you there's sorrow after that. Seeing your children rebel brings a heart-wrenching sorrow. Seeing teenagers that want nothing to do with you 
tears your heart beyond compare. Seeing your kids in relationships with people that you know are bad for them kills you. Seeing them turn their back on God will, will break your heart. This sorrow that comes on you moms is because of the fall. And I bet if we were to go around the room and talk to the, the moms who have had then adult kids, they'd say, I'd, I'd trade the sorrow of my kid going that way for the pain of childbirth. I'll take that any day of the week. These are the ramifications of the fall. And I want to be very careful. I, I, obviously, there's great joy in being a mom. And obviously, you know, I don't want to go from dads, too. Dads would, of course, have sorrow for kids doing all these things. But we can't deny the special bond a mom has with her kids. And this blessed thing now comes with great sorrow. We keep reading, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. If I, without context, say you'll desire, the wives will desire their husbands, without context, that sounds like a good thing. But we're reading this in the ramifications of the fall. So odds are what we're reading aren't good things. And this word desire we're going to see in the next chapter where it says, God says of Cain, sin is desiring you. But we're seeing that same word back to back. So what does it then mean if it's not a good thing to desire your husband? We read the whole thing. Desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. One of the ramifications of the fall the woman was created to be the helpmeet to her husband, but she's going to covet the husband's position. I would rather, first of all, I'd rather not give birth to the babies, thank you. That could be your responsibility from now on. I'd rather be in charge because I'm better than you. I can figure this out quicker than you. I wouldn't have made that mistake. Help meet is degrading. I'd like to at least be equal because we don't understand leadership and help and somehow think they're lesser or different. And there's now a despising of any idea of submission. Ephesians 5 talks about it. Colossians 3 talks about it. Titus 2 talks about it. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about it. It's all over the Bible, but enough Christians have believed the lie. It's allegory. That was good back then, but we've come further now. To have someone have headship over me is not right, and I'm going to fight it. I'm just talking about the women's side. We'll get to the men's side in a minute. This is one of the ramifications of the fall. And again, we see this in marriages all over. As pastors, we do a lot of marriage counseling. And in marriage counseling, an unfortunate number of people that we love and are trying to serve don't understand the roles or flat out reject the roles. You can see the ramifications it has on their marriage. And I know what I'm saying is not popular. 
Um, don't know how much some of you are, are fighting this right now. Um, if God would have sought my counsel, I might have suggested otherwise. David, what do you think? Glad you asked, God. <laughs> God, in my experience, a lot of the guys that I know fall under the category of doofus. And putting them in charge is probably a bad idea. This isn't based on my opinion. And it's not based on intelligence. It's not based on wisdom. It's not based on skill. It's not based on holiness. It's based on the character of God. We see understanding and embracing of roles in the Trinity. When we learn in Ephesians 5, the marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ and his relationship with his church. So I don't get to choose what my marriage looks like. My marriage looks like God said it's supposed to look like because that's the picture for the world. This is a little picture of the glory of God. Who am I to change that? Who am I to say, it doesn't work for me? We'll answer that question because now we're talking to the man in verse 17. Adam, God said, to Adam, God says, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. Again, not the man, the ground. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, Oh, toil. that word toil, same word as sorrow. So I think New King James did a great job with that word sorrow in verse 16. I hate that New King James didn't use the word sorrow in verse 17. In toil and sorrow, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the garden. In, sweat, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So that last part talking about physical death, one of the ramifications, men and women will die. And we go back to chapter 1, chapter 2. What was man called to do? Man was called to lead, be the head. Man was called, chapter 2, verse 15, to tend and keep, guard and serve, protect and provide, whatever words we're going to use. Talk about the, the serving part, the providing part. What was Adam's first job? Agriculture. Grow things. Now what? About growing things. Not going to work like you want anymore. Your job used to be nothing but joy and ease. Now when you work the garden, you're going to sweat. Now when you work the garden, there are going to be thorns and weeds that are taking away from your hard work. Now when you work the garden, next harvest season, you're not going to get everything you expected. You're going to do everything you were supposed to do, but here come the locusts undoing what you did. You're going to do everything you were supposed to do. Here comes the drought. And you can't feed your family. These are the ramifications of the fall. The ground is crying out for a redeemer too, according to Romans chapter 8. So so the ground is cursed. Adam's specific calling is cursed. So so we we, we push that forward to our day because most of us aren't involved in agriculture. But our work is now affected by the fall. 
You're going to work hard. You're going to work two jobs and you can barely, barely pay your bills, especially in San Diego. You're going to be so diligent at work for so many years, but your business has to downsize and you lose your job. You're going to be a faithful, hard worker with integrity who really needs a promotion and somebody else is going to get promoted when everybody knows it should have been you. You're going to work hard and other people around you are not going to do their job and that's going to directly affect your work. You're going to work hard and it felt like it was for nothing. You're going to input your your work hard into the computer and the computer goes down and there goes all your work the last week. You're going to have the business. You're going to have people under you that don't live up to what they say. They don't come through and they affect your business. You're going to have people lie to you. You're going to have people not pay you. Fill in the blanks. These are the ramifications of the fall. And obviously, again, this is directed to men, but a lot of you ladies have jobs and a lot of you ladies have felt these things. Not to say work is not good, but work is directly affected because of the fall. And then men, you're supposed to be leading the home like Adam did by the tree. Sometimes you're going to abdicate that. You're not going to lead in love. Or not going to lead at all. Or flip side. Sometimes you're going to lead, but you're going to be a tyrannical dictator that crushes your wife and makes her feel like nothing. These are the ramifications of the fall. So because of the fall, we take these good things like childbearing, we take these good things like the roles of marriage, we take these good things like work, and we run from them, and we're hurt by them, and we're bruised by them, we feel the pain of them. Or because of sin, we can go in the other direction. We can make these our idols. And, and the mother can make being a mother her idol. This is my identity. This is my everything. I have to be the mom. I have to have my kids lean on me. I have to have everybody around me say, wow, what a good mom. The man who, who, who makes work his idol. I have to get that promotion. I have to be respected by my coworkers. I don't want to go home. Here I'm respected. There I'm not. Here I'm valued. There I'm not. Here I know what I'm doing. I went to college and they prepared me for this. Nothing prepared me for home. And we're taking these good things and making them our idols. Your sin. When Pastor Brian says we live in a Genesis 3 world, he's talking about what happened historically in Genesis 3 and how that affects us in every part of our lives, every day of our lives. Unfortunately, you guys are not listening fast enough, so I have to go a little faster. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Angels stand guard so they can't get in. A little kid asks, are they still there? Can we go on a journey and look? Well, we're going to get to the flood, and because of the flood, the angels don't need to be guarding the Garden of Eden anymore. Letter D, the bottom of your first page, man's fallen nature. So we've got to understand that Adam, the old McGuffey reader, um, the books I get for my kids, A is for apple. B is for ball. C is for cat. The old McGuffey reader. A, in Adam's fall, we sin all. 
That's a little deeper than A is for Apple. They wanted those kids to start day one. Learn letter A. Day one, learn Adam's sin directly affects you. Two or three weeks ago, we brought the kids up here and we did a baby dedication. Not just because we love babies, because we recognize the babies are born in sin, and as precious as they are, they need a Savior. We've got to pray our guts out for them. We've got to ask for us as a church to serve these parents and help them in this very hard task. This is a, a sin nature that's passed down to us. I'd encourage you to read Romans 5 uh, sometime this week. It's an incredible chapter helping us see Adam, and here's a big theological term, as a federal head. Federal head. He had a position where he was a, an appropriate representative to those under him. This picture is a king. King, de- king A declares war with King B. If you are a citizen of King A, you can't raise your hand and say, actually, I don't agree with that declaration of war and I'm not involved. So side B, please don't bomb my house. You're connected to King A, whether you like it or not. Whether you agree with it or not. King A declares war with King B. If you're in Kingdom A, you're at war. He's your head. He has that responsibility. When Adam sins, he is the appropriate representative for all those that are born after him. Very silly illustration I heard years ago that stuck with me. Mommy elephant and daddy elephant have a baby. Mommy elephant has mommy life, elephant life. Daddy elephant has elephant life. Their kid will have elephant life. Not mosquito life, not rabbit life, not dog life. You pass on your life to your offspring. Adam, sinner, spiritually dead. Eve, sinner, spiritually dead. They're humans. They pass on human life. They also pass on the state of being spiritually dead. And Romans 5 helps us see this. It's on the screen. Uh, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus, thus death spread to all men because all sin. This is why, again, talking about our babies, we don't need to teach our babies to lie. We don't need to teach our babies to be selfish. They're going to figure it out all on their own because they're born in this state of, of, of spiritual death. And if we, if we see this chapter allegorically, if we see this chapter as a fable, as a story, and we're going to give man too much credit, and we can figure it out. Especially as Americans, right? That's what we're about. We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we make it happen. We've got to understand there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Turn your notes over. In this chapter that that points to these sad, tragic things, we also have a covenant of grace. Letter A, you see, a simple thing. Physical life gets to continue. Eve is called Eve because she's the mother of the living. So even though 
God said, in that day you eat, you'll surely die. They did spiritually die that day, but they didn't physically die that day. God graciously allowed their physical life to continue. That's why mankind continues. So we see grace in the fact that God lets us keep living, even though we're sinners. But then we ultimately see grace in Genesis 3.15. Theologians usually refer to this as the first gospel proclamation of the scripture. It reads, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we have creation and the fall, and here's our first promise of redemption. And the rest of the Old Testament contains literal history, contains poetry, and many, many more things that point to the coming Redeemer. God says, you sinned, but I will send a Redeemer. Of the seed of a woman, it's going to be somewhat, a, a, a full human who will finally be the one who can destroy the work of the serpent, destroy the, the work of Satan. And as we went over so many times in our Matthew series, this is pointing to Jesus Christ the Messiah. And he's going to do what the first Adam couldn't do. So you, you, again, you read Romans 5, you have the ultimate comparison. Here's Adam, and here's what happens for all those associated with Adam. But here's Jesus, and here's his success, and here's his victory, and here's the promises and the glory for all those that are associated with him. We learn we have two possible representative federal heads. We can be under the headship of Adam and his sin, or by grace through faith, we can put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and be under his headship and be clothed in his righteousness. And here's the picture of that already in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.21, For Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve, they made coverings for themselves made out of the trees, made out of the leaves. That was not sufficient. God provides a sufficient covering. It's skin, animal skin. Translation, something had to die. Sin is so serious, blood needed to be shed. God, in his grace, allows this animal to die in their place. God, in his amazing grace, provides the covering for their guilt, the covering for their shame. He brings it to them. Look how that points to Jesus. We could not possibly redeem ourselves. We could not possibly make ourselves right before God. But God in his grace sends Jesus Christ. Jesus dies in our place, just like this animal died in their place. By faith, by grace through faith, Jesus allows his perfection, his righteousness to cover our sins. So now, when God sees us in Christ, he doesn't see our wretchedness, nor does he see the wretched sin of our first father, Adam. He sees the perfection and the grace and the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he's pleased. Historical fact. 
God created the universe in six consecutive 24-hour periods and then rested the seventh day. It's a fact. Historical fact. Adam and Eve were tempted by a serpent. They succumbed to that temptation. They willfully ate the forbidden fruit and brought sin into this world. That's a fact. It's also a fact that when they did that, bringing sin into this world, they bring sin to us. And we, because of Adam's fall, we are then born in that sin, totally depraved. It's also a historical fact that after that happened, God gave a covenant of grace to Adam and Eve, promising to send a redeemer. It's a historical fact that Jesus Christ came to this world born of the Virgin Mary. Fully God and fully man. It's a fact that Jesus lived this life, human life, just like us, with one huge exception, he never sinned. It's a fact. It's a historical fact that he was unjustly crucified, nailed to the cross. It's also a fact when he died on that cross, there was a transaction taking place that we couldn't see, but we know it's true because the Bible says so. In that transaction, the sins of God's people were put on Christ and he felt it in full. He felt the weight. He felt the wrath of God. It's a fact that he said, it is finished. In finishing, it doesn't just mean our sins placed upon him. It also means his righteousness placed on his chosen people. That's a fact. He was buried because he really died. It's a historical fact on the third day he rose again. It's a historical fact that he ascended to God where he is seated at the right hand of God. And it's a fact that everyone who by grace through faith repents and puts their faith and trust in Christ alone, receiving him as Lord and Savior, it is a fact that those chosen people are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and saved. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, those are facts. They're not facts because I say so. They're not facts because my senses believe they're so. Those are facts because God's word tells me so. And by this I stand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we naturally are sinners. And you are a holy God. In our state of sin, we have no right at all to come before you. But how gracious you are. How gracious you are to send your son, Jesus Christ. How gracious you are to let him be in a, a suitable, appropriate representative for your people. How gracious you are to let his righteousness take our place, to let him suffer in our place. That wasn't fair, but it was good. And we come before your throne this morning thanking you for your grace. We come before your throne recognizing that even though we are naturally in Adam, by grace we can then be seen in Christ. 
when we are in Adam, everything we do is in some way tainted by sin. But when we are in Christ, we can please you. When we are in Christ, we can give you the honor you deserve. When we are in Christ, you indwell us with your Holy Spirit who can empower us for service in a way that is pleasing in your sight, in a way that brings eternal rewards. What grace. We thank you that in the midst of this very, very hard chapter is an incredible word of grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ. May we look to him and lean on him. And it's in his name that we pray.